Conference in Santa Barbara. Tape number 13, Ashley Brilliant. Fellow writers, fellow human beings, fellow pieces of matter. Yes, we are matter. And regardless of all the evidence, we do matter. We're all important in our own way. Yet most of us want to be more important to more people than we already are. And in fact, that is what writing is all about. And that's one of the things I want to talk to you about this afternoon. Now I am here today billed officially as a famous writer. It's certainly nice to have that kind of proof of what I really am. If I meet anybody who has the nerve to say that he or she has never heard of me, all I have to do is whip out my Santa Barbara Writers Conference flyer and say, look, it says right here, famous writer. But this isn't the first time this sort of thing has happened to me. Some people spend their whole lives seeking their own true identity. I keep having mine thrust upon me. For example, would you believe that I am one of the few people in the world who can actually prove that I am a hippie? Or at least that I was on April the 7th, 1967. I learned this fact about myself from no less an authority than the San Francisco Examiner. And it had a profound effect upon my entire career. In case you doubt me, I will read you the full text of the paragraph in a news report of that date which contained this revelation. Quote, Heated debate broke out when a small group moved to have the town hall meetings abolished in favor of impromptu discussions. Gary Garabedian, a 16-year resident of the district, comma, and Ashley Brilliant, comma, a hippie, comma, <laughs> led the opposition to the motion, which was overwhelmingly defeated. Well, that's all that I've written. <laughs> the rest is off the cuff, ladies and gentlemen. I just thought you'd like a taste of what it would, would have been like if you'd had to sit through an hour and a half of Ashley Brilliant's prepared speech. I'm at the end of this conference here, and I assume that I'm provided as kind of light relief. But this is very frustrating to me because I don't see myself in that light at all. To me, this is what, <laughs> you may not believe this, but this is the culmination of my career up to this time. This is a momentous event in my personal fortunes. It's really the fulfillment of a fantasy. Now, it's true that I did speak to the Santa Barbara Conference, sorry, Writers Conference once before, several years ago. But uh, how many of you were here on that occasion? I don't know how many. Oh, not that many. Oh, good. Well, uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, on that occasion, I was uh, called in at the last minute to uh, substitute for somebody else. I was not officially on the program. This time, I'm officially on the program. Now, to my knowledge, this is the first time in human history a professional epigrammatist has been invited as a formal uh, a member of the uh, program staff of a writer's conference anywhere in the world. 
So this is really a big first for me. It's true I live in Santa Barbara, so it's not as exciting as if I've been called from the other side of the earth to be here. But even so, I am getting paid for this, yes? And uh, I have for you today something that is going to make it worthwhile your having come here, believe me. Another one of my fantasies has always been, ladies and gentlemen, to be able to drop a bombshell before an expectant audience. Now today, I am going to drop a bombshell, and I've been thinking about doing it for so long that I'll probably mess it up. <laughs> so I won't do it right away. I'll leave you hanging in suspense. <laughs> it is coming. Now this, as I say, is a time when I'm billed officially as a famous writer. I'm not embarrassed about this, but I am sort of abashed, you might say, or uh, put at a loss for how to handle this. Because it, it makes me ask myself right away, uh, am I really famous? And am I really even a writer? Well, uh, shall we start with famous or shall we start with writer? All right, let's start with writer. Am I a writer at all? Well, all right, I am a writer. I write things. But obviously, I'm not an ordinary kind of writer. I never write anything longer than 17 words, if you can believe that. At least, that's at least what I'm well known for. I'm going to enlighten you on that subject also. But officially, I never write anything longer than 17 words. Uh, they're called epigrams, or in the trade we call them pot shots or brilliant thoughts, names that I made up. But the Library of Congress calls them epigrams. And they're all copyrighted, which is unusual in itself. Now, another unusual thing is that they don't, don't just come out in books. Unlike most of the other writers that have spoken to you, I publish in all kinds of media. In fact, I began with uh, postcards, such as you see here. And you'll now find me on uh, t-shirts, on uh, calendars, on tote bags, and even uh, illicitly on restroom walls. <laughs> but uh, although I'm a writer, I don't write in ordinary English. It may appear to be ordinary English if you read it casually. But it's actually a very restricted, crafted, disciplined form, which I myself have invented. A little box which I've confined myself in, I guess in order to give myself a challenge, to, make, to give myself something difficult to do for the rest of my life. Uh, what makes it difficult? Well, apart from having to do it in 17 words, I also have a rule that it has to be easy to translate into any foreign language. Now, if you think about that for a minute, that cuts out a whole lot of things. Rhyme is very hard to translate. Rhythm is hard to translate. A lot of uh, topical allusions, a lot of cultural idioms are hard to translate. So all of that has to be set aside. And I have to write in a very, very basic kind of English. I don't know any other languages well enough to write in them. But I write in, a, in an invented kind of English, which is as easy as possible for other people to translate. When Mr. Schultz was talking about uh, peanuts being translated, it interested me because obviously he doesn't take much interest or he isn't very concerned about uh, what the translators do 
with peanuts. He has he has translators to uh, do it for him, and presumably they don't have to worry about uh, how hard or easy it is for them to translate peanuts. But my job is to make it as easy as possible for anybody to translate my work. Now, another unusual thing about me as a writer is that I also illustrate my own work. But I'm not a cartoonist, and they're not cartoons. A cartoon, as I understand it, is a uh, word and picture presentation in which both the words and the pictures depend upon each other. And you, can't, you wouldn't really want one without the other. You couldn't, uh, certainly couldn't appreciate the uh, words properly if you didn't have a picture as well. Now, with mine, it's just the opposite. I think of myself as a writer, and even though I do illustrate my own work, I, I write in such a way that you don't need a picture, that you can have them read to you without any illustration at all. I'm uh, going to read some of them to you later this afternoon, and I hope you'll be able to enjoy them, whether you've seen it, ever seen the picture that goes with it or not. Uh, but the illustrations that I do are also very unusual. Uh, I'm not a cartoonist. I'm not a comic strip uh, artist. I don't have any cast of characters. In fact, I try to make everything that I draw as different as possible from everything else. I try to make every illustrated epigram a completely separate, different work. And that, believe me, is a challenge when you get to having 3,169 behind you, having to try to make sure that the next one is uh, different from all the rest. Forgive me if I pause frequently this afternoon to drink from this vessel, which I assure you contains nothing but water from the restroom over there. I'll explain in a little bit about this tune. Now, another unusual thing about me as a writer, compared with most of you guys, I guess, is that I run my own company. I have a whole little outfit that uh, markets these things any way we can all over the world, operating out of a little house here in Santa Barbara on uh, West Valerio Street, number 117. And we have a, um, a mail order business, which is the mainstay of this whole operation. Uh, and. Um, I recommend a mail order to you. I'll come back to that a bit later on. And I guess another thing that makes me different from many writers is that I don't write according to any um, discipline or schedule as far as uh, time goes or place. I always carry bits of paper around in my pocket, and that's one of my secret weapons, I always say. And the other one is a pen. And whenever I get an idea, I write it down. It's as simple as that. Of course. It's not as simple as that at all, because that's just the beginning of it, and then you have to refine it, work on it, like any other kind of writing, and between the initial idea and the final published output could be a matter of years. Well, that will take care of the writing part. I hope I persuaded you that I am some kind of a writer. But am I a famous writer? I don't know why I've got to uh, discuss this at all, but it's just so... So, uh, it seems, Im what's the word? Impinging on me? That's not the word. Incumbent on me. It seems incumbent on me to present some form of credentials to you, since many of you probably are here on faith alone. Am I famous? Well, it depends what you mean by famous. I have not won any awards. I've never yet won the Nobel Prize for Literature, although I do say that that is my ultimate aim. 
I haven't even won the Pulitzer Prize, although I have been nominated for it. Yes? Uh, incidentally, I noticed somewhere in, in uh, somebody else's uh, remarks, it says they were no nominated for a Pulitzer Prize. Well, I didn't mean to reveal this about them, but I will reveal it about myself. <coughs> Anybody can be nominated for a Pulitzer Prize. In fact, you can nominate yourself, officially. Yes, yes. And you can nominate yourself for a Pulitzer Prize. Or you can ask your publisher to nominate you, which is what I did in my case. And you can go around saying you were nominated for Pulitzer Prize. This is a very nice, useful thing to know as a writer. So it's already, it's already been worthwhile your coming here today. You do, of course, have to be published. You have to be published, and, uh, and you have to nominate yourself or get somebody else to do it in the year, in the year of your first publication, the first year of, of publication of that work. I'm also, whether I'm famous or not, I'm not usually mobbed in the streets by huge crowds. I'm not in who's who. At least I'm not in the national who's who. I am, I am in who's who in the West. You can look me up. However, if you ever looked at who's who in the West, it's a, it's a huge volume that I'm sure nobody ever consults about anything. In fact, if you ever go to the reference room of a public library and look at all the who's who's there are, and then consider all the who's who's that are not even stocked in the public libraries, I bet every one of us is on some kind of mailing list for some kind of who's who or directory. Put up your hand, those of you who are on some kind of mailing list trying to get you listed as a who's who, some kind of directory, some kind, something to make you feel important as if you, as if you were really somebody. Yeah, you know, it's very common. And I just ignore those letters now. In fact, I would not even try to get in who's who in the West again. I would, I would uh, uh, answer who's who, the national one, because that still has some meaning for me. Uh, I'm also in the uh, Gale Contemporary Writers series, which has some validity, I think. I, I, do, I can even consult that myself about other writers. And I got a, a column and a half in that, I think. So um, to that extent, I'm famous. Uh, tour buses do not yet include my house on their itinerary. <laughs> However, it's easy to find, and you'll see there's a little um, a bulletin board outside it if you're looking for it. I have never yet even been on nationwide television, except the Alan Thick program is supposedly using some of my work. Has there, have any of you seen my work on the Alan Thick late night, thick of the night program? Ah, shucks, I was hoping somebody could confirm this, this rumor. A, a, a thick program did actually make an arrangement with my publisher, but so far I haven't had any direct confirmation of this. Um, I've been on a lot of local television programs, but they, uh, I don't think that indicates fame. Um, and I don't even get invited to a lot of big parties. However, I am in four books. Now that is something. I, look, you've seen these books. Four books, ladies and gentlemen. It isn't easy to get published in four books. And, and, and believe it or not, I never even wanted to be in a book at all. I always thought of myself as writing postcards. And it was just sort of as a fluke. Uh, my doctor had uh, this uh, uh, wonderful publisher that was publishing his book. And uh, my doctor wanted to use my work to illustrate his work. His work was called The Psychometabolic Blues. <laughs> um, the publisher liked my doctor's book. My doctor's name is Jerome Marmestein. And he liked uh, my work, but he didn't think they went well together. 
so uh, the publisher suggested that he bring out a separate work of mine, which was this first one, I May Not Be Totally Perfect, But Parts of Me Are Excellent, 1979. Now, I thought that that was the um, beginning and end of it. I thought that would take care of books for a long, long time. But uh, year after year, the publishers come back wanting more of this sort of thing. And it's been very difficult for me, because although I've had the, um, the epigrams, the illustrated epigrams, ready to put in, I've also had to write an introduction each time and, and turn it into chapters and write introductions for the chapters. And each time I thought it was the last time. And each time I've tried to do it uh, thinking that the person who's looking at this book has not seen any of the others. So I've got to try to be different each time and yet say the same thing each time. And it's, uh, that is really a challenge. And I take some pride in that achievement of having done that. And I'm going to be reading you uh, a little bit out of some of these because... Uh, that, I think, adds a little bit to my credentials as a writer. Another drink rest, excuse me. All right, four books, 3,169 postcards, published in many millions. The books, incidentally, total now about 200,000 uh, copies, which isn't bad. That's for all four books. And the nice thing is that apparently they do go on and on selling. My publisher keeps saying this. It's not a sort of flash-in-the-pan thing. Uh, the way that I, the, the careful way that I've written this stuff, it has a universal, long-lasting appeal that can go on and on. Uh, I have all these licensed products that I've told you about. I am uh, syndicated. In certain cities, I'm considered a celebrity. If you go to Detroit or, uh, or Denver, I'm in the leading newspapers in these towns. But altogether, I'm only in a dozen papers. Remember how many <laughs> uh, uh, Sparky Schultz said he was in? Was it 1,900 papers? Imagine how I feel uh, uh, being in 12. All the same, I am a syndicated author, for whatever that's worth. And it is true that people I meet who know my work sometimes behave as if they consider me famous. You know, they're sort of respectful, and they ask for my autograph and stuff like that. Uh, and I have been written up in the newspapers occasionally. And recently, for the first time, this January, uh, I was written up by a national wire service. The United Press International actually had a, an article about me. I can show it to you. <laughs> well, you may not believe this. And they also had a photograph. And it was on the front page of one of the sections of the Los Angeles Times, one of those sections, one of those editions which nobody got. <laughs> so even if you got the LA Times for January the 29th, 1984, you probably didn't see it. But it did happen. See, I have a funny kind of fame, and I'm going to tell you more about this. It has to do with my bombshell, too. Don't forget about that. Uh, I've also been in Reader's Digest several times. Reader's Digest, 13 million people, isn't it? Uh, circulation. I have been quoted in their quotable quotes. How many of you have ever noticed me in the quotable quotes of the Reader's Digest? There you are. There's fame for you, ladies and gentlemen. That's what it's worth. They pay, what is it, they pay $75 a time, I think. They're seen by all those people nobody ever notices. Uh, I have conducted a copyright cases in places as far-flung as Australia, Germany, the West Indies, and Nigeria. Is that fame? Well, people, you know, come across my work and copy it. A, a policeman once let me off a traffic ticket because he had heard of me. In fact, he even whipped out a uh, pot shot out of his, out of his wallet. <laughs> now, it's true, it was a local policeman in Carpinteria. It's 
still, you know, it sort of makes you feel as if uh, 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 you have some kind of fame. A store in Chico, California, once actually paid me to fly there and autograph books in a little shop in Chico, California. Only time that's ever happened. Um, and that was several years ago. Um, and I am actually able to get really famous people sometimes to say nice things about me. If you look at the back of my books, I can write to uh, people that don't even know me personally. Uh, well, some of them do. Uh, like Herb Cain. Uh, well, I feel I know him a little bit since he talked about me at the last writers' conference. But uh, he, he uh, uh, says nice things about me, and I can quote. So there's another kind of fame. And I do get, uh, if you consider this fame, I get a lot of requests to reprint my work in various publications, including, which is meaningful to me, college textbooks. I used to be a, a college teacher, history. I have a PhD in history. Uh, and to think that I can uh, uh, have so much larger an audience than I ever would have had in the classroom is rather nice. Um, letters addressed just to Ashley Brilliant in Santa Barbara have been known to reach me. <laughs> and I do find my work legitimately in some strange, out-of-the-way places. And I'll tell you one story about that. Just uh, last October, uh, my wife and I... Oh, I haven't introduced my wife. Dorothy, uh, uh, stand up, Dorothy. This is Dorothy Brilliant. We happen, we happen to be celebrating our 16th wedding anniversary today. So it's a lovely occasion. Thank you. Dorothy and I, last October, were touring Australia. It was not a promotional tour for my books, although a previous, on a previous time I did, believe it or not, get sent by my publisher to uh, make a promotional tour of Australia. Uh, but on this occasion, we were just traveling around for pleasure. And one of the places that we'd always wanted to go to was one that I considered incredibly remote. The town or the outpost or the settlement of Darwin on the north coast of Australia. You know, uh, on our, one of our previous visits, where we, when we hadn't got up there, we used to listen to the commercials uh, on the radio and television. They advertised a kind of um, a f a f fly repellent, which they badly need there, called AeroGuard. And the opening of the commercial used to say, deep in the tropical north. And this was always very meaningful to us. You know, we thought, gee, we are really in Australia. We are really in a different world where they talk about the tropical north. <laughs> deep in the tropical north. Uh, so we always wanted to go ourselves deep into the tropical north. And here we had this occasion to visit Darwin in the northern territory of Australia. And we were up there, and we discovered that actually it's fairly civilized to the extent at least they do have uh, uh, a college. Uh, and the college actually had a little store. And I visited this store, and believe it or not, <laughs> right there on the counter, this store in, in Darwin, Australia, were several of my books. And I looked at the woman behind the counter and I thought, I am going to knock this woman over. I am going to say to her who I am. And I did. I, told, I said, guess, guess who's standing in front of you, madam? And I hold up this book. You know, and I had, a, I had the, the beard at that time. And you know, she was very nice. <laughs> but she wasn't really astonished at all. <laughs> and to me, to me, that was the most astonishing thing. It was a, it was a highly educational experience. It made me realize, uh, you know, how small the world has become. And uh, Darwin is not so remote in my mind anymore. 
uh, and if this is fame, well, all right, it's fame, but uh, you don't have to go all the way to Darwin to not astonish somebody. <laughs> Incidentally, uh, I've learned a lot about Darwin uh, uh, and how civilized it really is because of those days I had just begun using the, uh, that wonderful new sweetener, Equal, the um, aspartame sweetener, and I ran out of it when we were there and I thought, oh God, I won't get any more until we get back to the States or at least when we get to Sydney. But I went across the street from our hotel to the first drugstore and they had it there. So Darwin is um, not what you think or not what we thought. Anyway, that, I hope, covers the subject of whether or not I am a writer and whether or not I am famous, for better or worse. But speaking of fame, whenever a writer thinks of fame, should I go on talking while this train is passing or should I wait till it's finished? Pardon? Gosh, the microphone has not been on this whole time. And nobody said a thing. <laughs> Why didn't anybody say something? Oh, that's wonderful. Of course, it's time for another drink. Can we get your recipe? <laughs> Just water, as I told those who didn't come late. When we think of fame, we usually say fame and fortune. That's what every writer wants. And I've thought about that for a long time. And the more I thought about it, the more I thought there are a few other things we want to add. And as, as a matter of fact, by coincidence, they all begin with F. So I, instead of those two Fs, I've now got a list of 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11 Fs, which I present to you, ladies and gentlemen. I say fame, fortune, freedom, friends, fun, family, feeling, function, fitness, faith, and future. Did you get them all down? <laughs> uh, I really think uh, uh, all that is really important in life. Nevertheless, fame and fortune is the old hackneyed cliche, and I'm going to be talking a little bit more about that in a minute. However, before I go to that, I want to point out, uh, as I did when I held up my book, that those of you who remember me from a previous incarnation will remember that I did not have a beard. And you also may think that I'm looking rather thinner, and you may wonder why. So I thought I'd explain, since it has to do with this frequent drinking too, that um, I turned 50 <laughs> in December of this year. and. Um, when I started growing a beard, it was all black. <clears throat> and I'd had this vision. I was very much influenced by that famous, to me, famous photograph of Theodore Herzl, the man who had the vision of the Jewish state uh, uh, back in the 1890s and wrote that book about it and uh, inspired uh, the Zionist movement. There's a wonderful photograph of him standing by the river in Basel looking like a great prophet with his wonderful black beard. And that was a vision I had in mind of myself uh, with a beard. But when I saw it beginning to turn white, and I thought eventually I'm going to start looking like Santa Claus, <laughs> I took the opportunity, the occasion of turning 50, to uh, uh, take it off. Incidentally, it was sort of funny that that UPI article that I told you about happened to come out at just about that time. 
And uh, the writer uh, uh, featured that. Uh, in fact, he started the uh, um, article by saying, half a century through life on this strange planet. Ashley Brilliant, who says he may be the world's only professional epigrammatist, has shaved his beard and starves himself two days a week. Now, the starving part comes from uh, my having met a few months previous to that, Mr. Roy Walford, the author of a book called Maximum Lifespan. This is not a talk today about health, so I'll just tell you briefly that he is a gerontologist at UCLA, and although I'm very skeptical about all these things, I, um, I have become persuaded after talking to him and reading his book and really thinking about it, that rats and mice really do live substantially longer when they are given less food, you know, when they fast them uh, several uh, days a week or a month, they, uh, they actually do live longer. Now, there is no proof whatsoever that this applies to human beings. And then how can there be any proof? You'll have to wait another 150 years to really know for sure. But Walford himself told me that he is fasting two days a week. And for a number of months up, to, up through the time this article was written, I fasted uh, two days a week. I do it much less uh, now because I found I was losing too much weight. But I still eat a lot less than I used to, and to compensate, I drink a lot of water. So that's the explanation of that. Now, getting on to more interesting things. Uh, what is my object today in talking to you this far into my speech? We ought to talk about where we're going. Well, I presume that as a fellow writer of yours, uh, it is behooving upon me to try to encourage you in your own efforts and also to uh, share whatever of my experience might be valuable to you, and uh, if I can, to inspire you in some way. And all this uh, leads up towards my bombshell. Uh, I have been asking myself for a long time, what could I do to really make a mark in the world? And I've never had a really good answer. If you look in the, uh, in the Guinness Book of Records for the things that other writers have done to make a mark in the world, uh, you could write the longest novel. Uh, but God, it took, it took Jules Romain from 1932 to 1946 to write these 27 volumes of Men of Goodwill. Is that really worthwhile just to make a mark in the world? Uh, you could be the most prolific writer in the world. George Simenon, according to the Guinness Book of Records, has written over 500 novels, sold more than 300 million copies. How about writing the world's worst seller? <laughs> the world's worst seller. That's another record. You've already done it. Can you prove it? <laughs> um, I don't want to break that record, but, the, but it does exist. According to the Guinness Book of Records, there is a documented world's worst seller. I thought that many of you might know about this. It ought to be engraved upon everybody's mind. The world's worst seller. You know, in order to establish this, you would have to have a publisher that was in existence long enough. The Oxford University Press happens to be the one in this case. The Oxford University Press in 1716 published 500 copies of a Coptic, uh, of a translation of a Coptic Bible into Latin. It took 191 years for that to sell out, thereby establishing the world's record for the worst-selling book of all time. 
Now, I don't want to break that record in any case. Think how long it would take to, to do it. Well, the funny thing is, the, the funny thing is, ladies and gentlemen, that there is another record. And I believe that I have actually broken it. And it is there in the Guinness Book of Records. Now, I don't know how to lead up to this, but I can tell you this. Back at the beginning of the century, the world's highest paid author was a man named Rudyard Kipling. And he was being paid at the astonishing rate of a pound a word. In those days, a pound was worth about five American dollars, and American dollars are worth a lot more than they are now. Pound a word. And there's a story, I hope it's true, because it's a lovely story, that a group of students in uh, Oxford uh, read about this. This was big news when it was announced. Um, and got together and, and sent Roger Kipling a pound and asked for a word. <laughs> <laughs> and he sent them back a one-word telegram. Thanks. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I stand before you today believing that I have broken that record. In fact, I have broken the record that the Guinness Book of Records gives you for the world's highest paid author. According to the Guinness Book of Records, the world's highest paid author was Ernest Hemingway, who in 1960 was offered, it says, um, $12,000 for a 2,000 word article, uh, which works out to about $15,000 a word, if I've got my figure, $15 a word, if I've got my figures correct. And anyway, at any rate, I remember that $15 a word is what Hemingway uh, was being paid. Now, I have a news release, which I guess at this point I might as well start to distribute because this is my bombshell. Would somebody like to help me? Maybe my wife could help me uh, distribute this here. I asked her beforehand. Oh, thank you. There aren't that many people, so I guess it'd be fairly easy. Oh, uh, Sue McMillan, please take a bow. Our faithful helper, the only other member of our staff in that brilliant enterprise. To tell you the truth, I would have introduced you earlier, Sue, but I thought you'd be embarrassed, so I didn't, uh, you know. <laughs> but you've got to see this to believe it. Standing in front of you is a man issuing a news release at this very moment, as if this were a press conference or something, <laughs> claiming to be the highest paid author in history. Wasn't it worth coming here today for that? Yeah. Only one to a customer, please. But please, everybody get one. And notice that it contains a, an authentic reproduction of a check. This is true. This is not made up. And you are going to hear the details before you leave here today, whether you like it or not. It feels so good. <laughs> Is this negotiable? <laughs> it's certainly worth the paper it's printed on. Congratulations. Thank you.
Okay. Has everybody read it? <laughs> I'm just dying to tell you the story behind this. <laughs> no, I'm not going to wait till you ask me. And the reason that I'm dying to tell you is that I really have never yet, before today, been able to tell this story in public. And I've hardly ever even told it in private. And to a group of writers, it ought to be of great interest. What can happen to you as a writer? I talked about fulfilling my fantasies. Uh, several years ago, one of my other fantasies appeared to be on the point of fulfillment. As a writer of this kind of stuff, as a person engaged in uh, the licensing industry, it was naturally always an Everest beckoning to me the idea that the whole, the great, sainted, revered Hallmark card company might someday take notice of me. Now, as a matter of fact, when I very first started doing this kind of thing, almost as a joke, I sent a few of them to the Hallmark card company, and they sent back a polite rejection letter. That was way back in 1967. Then I acquired um, an agent, not the ordinary kind of agent, um, but a person who um, thought that there was something in my work that he could sell somehow, some way, sometime, and who had contacts with the Hallmark Company, and who spent years uh, trying to interest uh, the Hallmark Card Company in my work. His name is Don Fraser, wonderful person, he lives up in uh, Santa, in uh, St. Helena, California, and he is very close to uh, Charles Schultz. In fact, uh, he has been very successful in uh, marketing some of Mr. Schultz's work on various products, including a new kind of ice cream has just come out, Snoopy ice cream. So I had a very good man working for me, although I wasn't paying him anything. This is a wonderful thing. He was doing this entirely sort of on spec, as they say. But he was never able to do anything either. Until I was in Australia on that promotional tour. I phoned home one day from a little uh, telephone booth near our property. We have some, some land in the extreme southwest of Australia, near the uh, town of Albany. And my wife said to me, uh, Don thinks that the uh, Hallmark Company is getting interested. And I said, oh, really? And when I came home, Sure enough, I found that the Hallmark Card Company was inviting me to come, actually come to Kansas City to talk to them at my own expense. <laughs> but they were willing to uh, put us up in their very nice hotel in the Crown Center. Now, I'm presuming that you all have heard of the Hallmark Card Company, and you know that it really is a very big corporation, the biggest thing of its kind in the world. Uh, and I expected that if we went there at our own expense, it would be a matter of us, uh, at that point, having to sell ourselves. It's me having to sell myself to the Hallmark Car Company. Well, here's where the fantasy really gets going, because that isn't how it was. To my amazement, we were led into this uh, conference room <laughs> with this group of really high-powered executives. 
And they had already sold themselves on me. They were all ready. In fact, uh, their big chief, a guy named Jack Jonathan, the head of the uh, new products department uh, at Hallmark, was spouting off a list of a hundred different products that he was going to put my work on. All I had to do was sign on the dotted line. But what they wanted me to do was commit myself totally to Hallmark, to give myself and all my work body and soul, uh, with nothing in return except the understanding that they were going to do something with my work. And also I would have to give up all my other uh, licensees. This is what can happen to you. <laughs> well, I wasn't going to have that, even though it was important to me. Uh, I'd been in business uh, long enough uh, not, to, um, not to want to risk everything on something so uh, speculative. But I was certainly willing to negotiate. And as a matter of fact, negotiations went on from that point for a year. And the negotiations included several trips from Kansas City uh, to Santa Barbara of these high-powered people, including Mr. Jack Jonathan himself on one occasion. I must admit he had a son at UCSB, so that had part of the reason for his coming here. But he did spend quite a lot of time with us. And another occasion, two other people from the new products company to tell us about all the uh, research they've been doing. Incidentally, I should explain the reason that they were already sold on me is that before we went there, they had been conducting these uh, market surveys, and they had been rating my stuff against the work of, uh, against other li possible licensees, people like um, Little Orphan Annie and uh, Miss Piggy, and uh, who else was there, Dorothy? Do you remember? Anyway, they'd, got, they'd, they'd actually conducted these tests, and apparently they'd found that my stuff would sell. Uh, and it included a trip by Dorothy and me, another trip back to Kansas City to talk to them. So it was one time in the depths of winter, and it's freezing cold, another time in the boiling heat. And everything else being kept on hold, meanwhile, because I couldn't make any uh, new licensing arrangements until this all got settled. And we were really, really on tenterhooks. And uh, actually, I got quite disgusted. Uh, waiting so long to see what was going to happen. And contracts went back and forth, contract proposals, um, until actually by the end of the year we did have a contract. And the contract, amongst other things, did include this check. Non-refundable, I insisted, for uh, an advance on royalties of $15,000. Now, I mentioned royalties. Royalties was unheard of at the Hallmark Company for, for stuff of this kind. You know, these greeting card companies don't pay royalties. They buy something for twenty, forty, fifty, a hundred dollars. They don't pay royalties on it. This was uh, one of the big achievements of my life, and in fact, I celebrated in my uh, new book. If you I haven't mentioned my new book yet, I will talk about it more in a minute. I feel much better now that I've given up hope. It just came out. Uh, I was getting royalties, and I was getting fifteen thousand dollars, and the agreement had this long list of over a hundred products. Uh, let me see if I can find some, the sort of things that they were going to put me on. Uh, no, somewhere here. Calendars, albums, party goods, posters, puzzles, costume jewelry, music boxes, candles, toiletries, sculptured soaps, 
however, if you read the contract very carefully, this is the problem. It did not actually guarantee that they were ever going to do anything at all with my work. They simply acquired the rights to it for a certain period of time. And the rights, they had acquired the rights to apply my work to these products. However, I was no babe in the woods, and I had said to Jack Jonathan, Jack, what would happen if you should leave the company or negotiations been with him? Uh, what guarantee do I have that any of this is actually going to go forward? He said, Ashley, patted me on the back. Don't you worry. I am going to write into this contract a provision that you and Dorothy are going to come here to Kansas City twice a year to make sure that this thing is going forward at our expense, at the Hallmark's expense, that is. And sure enough, he did. wrote it in there. Uh, so that seemed to be uh, fairly, fairly safe, I thought. Well, guess what happened? This agreement, this final contract was signed towards the end of December uh, of the year of the check, where that, 1982. In January of 1983, got a letter from Jack Jonathan. He is leaving the company. He retired. He was an old guy, and actually he was, he was very ill. So I wasn't really surprised in a way. But... Um, my agent, Don Fraser, was much more upset about this than I was. I think maybe he knew a lot more about what was going on than I did. He considered this a disaster. He didn't take this part in the contract about Dorothy and me going back and forth very seriously, and apparently he was quite wise to do so. Because the sad truth is, as it says here in the news release, which you've all read, that was really the end of the whole thing. Um, I had to pressure them for another year uh, to find out if they were really going to do anything with my work at all. I got some prototypes of three greeting cards that they were going to do. And just a few weeks ago, when I came back from a uh, trip to England that I'm going to tell you about, uh, I actually got these three Hallmark cards in the mail. There they are. 30 t a total of 32 words, <laughs> $58,000, Guinness Book of Records. Any questions about that before we go on to cheerful, more cheerful moments? I haven't yet written uh, to uh, Guinness. Uh, that might be one question you might ask. And uh, there is a problem here. <clears throat> the uh, thing that I told you about Ernest Hemingway is in the uh, 1976 Guinness Book of Records. I haven't looked in all the subsequent ones. It is not in the current one. The current one only has the second part of that entry, which I'll read to you. the written word it's in the section called the written word here we are the highest rate ever offered to a writer was $30,000 $30,000 to Ernest Miller Hemingway for a 2,000 word article on bullfighting by Sports Illustrated in January 1960 this was a rate of $15 per word in 1958 a Mrs. Deborah Schneider of Minneapolis, Minnesota wrote 25 words to complete a sentence in a competition for the best blurb for Plymouth Cars. She won from about 1,400,000 entrants the prize of $500 every month for life. On normal life expectations, she would collect $12,000 per word. No known anthology includes Mrs. Schneider's deathless prose. Now that was why I had to put in that part about ex uh, not counting uh, advertising contests. But even um, if you did count advertising contests, I think 
the, the fact is that apparently Mrs. Schneider's words were never actually even published. So I think I'll have a claim uh, to the highest paid published writing of any kind. Um, I sent this news release. Incidentally, I must admit to you, you are not the first people to see this release. In fact, I already sent it out uh, to all the media that I could think of. And uh, it did result in a few local things on uh, television and a call from a uh, radio uh, television station in Kansas City. But it's early days yet, and I'm hoping that this will gradually sink into the public consciousness. Now, you may wonder, what did I spend this $15,000 on? This calls for a drink. As a matter of fact, I have to admit to you, I didn't even get most of that money. Most of it went to the agent. And, no, most of it went to the artist. We had had to uh, hire an artist because Hallmark wasn't even interested in my art, believe it or not. They were only interested in the words. Uh, so uh, I only got, to, uh, the agent uh, got some, the artist got some, and I got the least. However, uh, just to make it a nice story, what did I do with the $15,000? Well, I bought a computer a 40 megabyte hard disk CompuPro computer. Now, I've had other computers, but I want to say a few words about computers today because I'm talking to writers. And I'm taking a survey. I'm really interested. How many of you at this point in your careers are using a computer in some way for a substantial part of your writing? Not yet a majority. That's interesting. That includes anything you call a word processor, of course, anything like that. That's interesting to me. I thought it would be more than that by now. Because once you get, get into that, you know, you don't ever go back. It's, it's a transition we will all have to make sooner or later. And I must admit that I haven't really made it yet. I've got the machines, but I still find it easier to write in longhand uh, for many purposes. But I'm gradually making the transition. However, there's, there's something else I want to say about computers and writers, which is much more important. If I can find what I want to say here. Uh, well, one thing I want to tell you is that I have found a very important use, personal, uh, in my business, personal business use for a computer, and that is to keep track of all these lines that I've written. You know, I told you I was going to find it harder and harder to avoid repeating myself. Well, with this um, huge device, and I had to get a big one because you can't do this with the small ones, I was able to list all 3,169 of my lines. And I can now, let's say that I want to find a pot shot that concerns uh, mothers. I can say, fine, uh, mother. And it will very, very quickly show me every line I've got that contains the word mother. This is very useful. And you might think of ways that you can use it in your own work. But that's not really what I want to talk about with computers and writers. I wonder if anybody can guess what I want to talk about with computers and writers. Uh, this is a, a, I don't know if maybe other people have talked about this at the conference. But you know, when you buy a computer, you can't use it right away. You've got to read all kinds of literature that comes with it. Ah, the penny's beginning to drop. Computer people cannot write. I'm going to repeat that, because this is probably the most important thing that I'm going to say here today. 
to a group of writers. Computer people cannot write. They can't really talk either. <laughs> but they don't know how to explain things to other people who are not computer people. They seem incapable of seeing things from a beginner's or an outsider's point of view. They always assume that you already know more than you do. And they tend to tell you more than you really need to know at any one point. Now this, I suggest to you, ladies and gentlemen, is a golden opportunity for writers. And I ask you to take me very seriously about this. There's a tremendous need and demand for good, clear, simple, step-by-step -step computer instruction. Has anybody else at the conference talked about this? Really? Oh, oh, somebody, somebody's uh, doing something about it. Yeah, I'm not talking about writing books on computers. I'm talking about more about uh, writing books. Well, anything to do with computers actually would apply. But especially, yeah. Because I have, I have something really good, but I don't know what to do with. Well, you've got to find a computer company. Uh, no, you don't have to. You can protect it. You're talking about copyright. I'm kind of, I'll talk about copyright yeah. as long as you like. It's one of my favorite yeah, subjects, but that's not... Tell me that, uh, it's hard to do with anything you've oh. written unless All right. you can prove that no one else has Copyright is not, should not be the worst of your problems. Uh, the, the main problem would simply be to, uh, to um, relate it to a particular machine or find... But, but actually, there's such a great crying need. My own personal fantasy is going up to the CompuPro company, that's the make of my machine, and saying, look, I'm a writer. You need me. Put me to work. And one of the, I might actually do this. I'm actually, I'm planning a trip up north there now, and I just might visit there. The trouble is, you know, I've got so many other things going on. I don't know if I have time to do this, but many of you do, I'm sure, are, are looking for, for writing assignments, somewhere where you're really needed, not something just to do off the cuff, but something commissioned. I think that uh, any intelligent person who's running a computer company would commission a good writer who presented himself in a good case to, ex to explain. You see, um, the, the computer people, I'm getting so excited about this, I'm uh, running ahead of myself. You may have seen some books by a guy called Peter McWilliams, the, the word processor book, the computer book. Now, it seems to me, he's a writer, but it seems to me he's gone to an extreme that I don't like. He's tried to be chatty and funny and illustrated his stuff with funny cartoons. And uh, sometimes even uh, and some other writers sort of talk, baby talk. You don't want that either. What you want is something in the middle, clear, plain, logical, orderly, but readable uh, prose. I don't want to spend all, all the time on this, but I did want to say that today. However, I want to uh, caution you. There's one big danger here. And it's somewhat like the story of the zombies. In order to explain it, you've got to understand it yourself. And that means study. It means working a lot with programs and computers. And it means mingling a lot with computer people, going to users groups, that sort of thing. And the more you do this, the greater the danger is that you will become one of them. acquire their language and their viewpoint and be incapable of communicating back across that great gap to the rest of the world. So watch out. Now, 
Uh, that's one kind of writing that you can do. I have done uh, other kinds of writing besides my epigrams. And I wanted to um, tell you that in my new book, the publisher was actually kind enough to give me a page in which I was able to list the other things that I'd written. Now, since I'm talking sort of confidentially today, I can tell you that this is not strictly legit. <laughs> uh, like many of the things that I do, this is a semi-hoax. But it's all true. Everything in here is true. It, it's a page called By Ashley Brilliant, and it starts uh, with uh, epigrams, which is perfectly legitimate, of course. I've got four books of epigrams. But I wanted to um, impress people with the idea that I have written other things in my life. So then I went on to songs. And I, I've got a list of various collections of songs that I wrote when I was a teacher on board a floating university sailing around the world. And then I mentioned the Haight-Ashbury Songbook, which I guess you can call a publication. Actually, I'll show it to you. Some of you may have actually seen this before, about 20 years ago, Haight-Ashbury Songbook. This is a collection of songs that I wrote when I was living in San Francisco in the hippie era. And my wife has urged me to sing to you today. And uh, therefore, I will give you a sample of the kind of things in here. It's a narc, it's a narc, it's a nasty narc. If you've got any pot, better keep it dark. To and fro, let him go up the wrong tree bark. It's a narc, it's a nasty narc. Overtrust means a bust and a stranger's dangerous and always was. Be discreet in the street where a cutie's duty could be to tip off the fuzz. It's a raid, I'm afraid, and he's made to pay to find the stuff you're on. Only hope caught with dope is to hush it, crush it, flush it down the john. It's a narc, it's a narc, it's a nasty narc. All my pot's in a spot hidden in the park, in the lee of a tree with a secret mark, where a narc never comes to bark. <laughs> I'm very proud of this book. There's a lot of nice things in it. But I'll just sing one other one here, if you insist. Maybe we should take a vote. <laughs> Uh, this ought to appeal to writers. I think it's rather well written. It's called The Girl I Left in Berkeley. <laughs> oh, I've left girls in many a town, from here to Albuquerque, but there's just one who let me down, the girl I left in Berkeley. She knew the pain I'd feel to leave and didn't want to hurt me, so before I left her, she left me the girl I left in Berkeley. <laughs> we knew our constitutional rights and sought to guarantee them. And so at school we joined the fight for academic freedom. We loved free speech and spoke free love, but I didn't mean it really. Although it's fair to love and share, she shared her love too freely. So in despair I left her there, and vowing I'd be wary, I crossed the bay one fateful day and came to hate Ashbury. I looked around until I found a girl with looks and knowledge, and she taught me that to be free you don't need books or college. Oh, school is just a big machine, and college girls can leave you. It's better on the hippie scene. A hippie won't deceive you. Oh, I've left girls regretfully from Mexico to Turkey. 
but I'm not so sad that she left me, the girl I left in Berkeley. But it's got other things in here. Oh, it also has my, ah, uh, uh, here's really stretching something. It's got Forward Australia, proposed new Australian national anthem, Perth, 1972. Well, it's true. I did write a proposed new Australian national anthem, and it was actually even published in a Sunday newspaper in Perth. But I'm certainly not going to sing that to you today. Uh, then it has a heading called Journalism, Nine Weeks Across America, in the age we're in District Post, London, July, September, 1951. Um, that's true. I, I actually wrote a column when I was 17 years old. I actually did hitchhike back and forth across the United States. And it's got Trash from Ash, something else that I wrote uh, in, the, uh, in my hippie days in San Francisco. Then we get into history, prohibition and contempt for the law, abolition in action. Very, you know what these are? These are term papers <laughs> that I wrote at Berkeley. And these have not even been published. But they're good, and I'm hoping somebody will see this and ask, what is this? And may, yeah, I might even get them published through this. Who knows? Uh, then it's got poetry, The Atheist Prayer, and other poems. That was never published. Unpoem titles. Unpoem titles was actually the uh, first title that I gave to my uh, epigrams when I first published them. Then it has criticism, another unpublished term paper, Houseman and the Hangman. But you see, I don't distinguish here between published and unpublished works, so it looks more impressive. And then it ends with drama, drama begetting a play, Dorland Mountain Colony, California, 1980. Now, I'd like to tell you about that. This is true, although it hasn't been published yet. I really did write a play at the Dorland Mountain Colony, which is something you should know about. Has anybody else at this writers' conference told you about colonies for writers where you can go and you can stay free while you, while you work? You have, who? You know about, but nobody else has talked about it. Oh, well, you certainly should know about them. Now, there's one in uh, back east called the McDowell Colony. It's been going on for years. But this one here is still not very well known, called the Dorland Mountain Colony. And if you write to them, I think you can write to them at Temecula, California. And uh, they, you can go there and stay there free of charge as a writer, writing. In fact, you can also go as a painter or a musician. It's very small, and probably by now the competition might be rather high to get in. I don't know. But for me, it was remarkably easy, because I applied when they were only just starting up. And um, all I had to do was send them some of my books that I already published and say that I was interested in writing a play, and they accepted me. Now, I must tell you that they didn't have any electricity, and they still don't. You stay in a cabin with no electricity, but they do provide you with uh, fuel for a lamp, which they give you, and fuel for a stove, and a lovely view from your cabin. And um, um, there's a grocery store in Temecula where you can go and buy your supplies. Uh, and you are free. They don't bother you. And you can sit there and write. And I actually turned out a play. I'd always wanted to write a play. And I, I, I knew I never would if I stayed in my accustomed circumstances. So this was really a good opportunity for me. And I came away with this play called Begetting. And you might be interested, yes, especially as, as writers, in what happened to this play. Um, now, here's a way that uh, being famous, as famous as I am, sort of helps. Uh, in my own community, I'm so well known that I can go to the local impresario, which I did, a guy named Pope Freeman, who runs the drama. I didn't know him, but apparently he'd heard of me, and he runs the drama courses at uh, City College. And I took this play to him, and at least I knew that he'd probably read it. Well, he not only read it, but he said he was willing to produce it. And I thought, oh boy, it's going to be that simple. 
And he put me in touch with the director. He said he didn't want to, he didn't want to direct it. He would produce it. Put me in touch with a director named Richard Ames. Do any of you know Richard Ames? Oh. <laughs> Uh, I'm afraid Mr. Ames and I uh, did not see eye to eye. I just couldn't get along. Um, and he wanted to change everything. I, I thought that I'd, I'd done something that was more or less finished. I, he didn't seem to like it or me or anything. And, um, and it really disillusioned me about the whole idea of producing a play because I put a lot of myself into this. So I dropped the whole idea. That was several years ago. And I've just recently taken it up again. And I've got it now being read by two other uh, local groups. Uh, so it might still have a chance of getting on the boards. But that's the story on that. And that's the story of my other writings. And that gives you some ideas, I hope, about what you can do about your other writings. Now, I did mention my new book, and I feel it incumbent upon me uh, to share a little bit of it with you. Because I don't only write epigrams. And I would like to read you a paragraph or two from some of the introductions to some of the chapters. Because everybody tells me they like these. But that's all. So I want to at least see somebody listening to them and liking them. Here's a, a chapter called uh, All Change. Some time ago, I began to notice that things do not always stay the same. Considerable research led to the conclusion that this is the fault of a mysterious and rather mischievous entity called change, some of whose antics are investigated in the following pages. If we must have them at all, I personally would prefer all changes to be for the better. But this is not always easy to arrange on notice as short as a single lifetime. One could, I suppose, at least insist that only necessary changes be permitted. But that would only provoke endless arguments about such questions as whether this entire century has been at all necessary. Perhaps a more pragmatic approach might be to try to change yourself at the same rate that everything else is changing. This can, however, be somewhat exhausting and may very well account for the large numbers of people who were alive in 1653 but no longer are today. In the final analysis, it appears that we can blame all change on the phenomenon known as time. So if we don't like the changes we see happening, all we need to do is arrange to have time abolished, or at least permanently frozen at some internationally agreed upon moment. Should that ever come to pass, I naturally hope that the moment selected will, if possible, be one when it's a nice day everywhere. <laughs> and here's another paragraph I'm particularly proud of. This is the, say, the section called What's in a World? I should point out to those of you who haven't seen these books at all, that these books are collections of these illustrated epigrams, but this text is what I had to write specially for each one. In the unlikely event that you ever begin to lose interest in your own affairs, there are always plenty more of even greater variety in a place now reachable by many forms of transportation known as the world. Here you will find any number of strange and compelling attractions all the more fascinating because most of them, as far as any possible need for you has ever been concerned, are entirely self-sustaining. Without your advice or consent, whole cities have been built, libraries of books written, entire cultures and civilizations organized, and an enormously complicated system called nature set up. Almost everywhere you go in this great bewilderness, it will not be hard to find places you don't know 
people you have never heard of, and things you don't understand. Well, uh, just, that's just to prove to you that I don't only write epigrams, but I'm going to read you some of the epigrams that I do write. However, I've got to tell you about something else first, just after I've had a drink and the train goes by. You know, I don't often get this sort of opportunity very often. So I have to share another fantasy with you that has come true. I seem to be living my fantasies. And one of my fantasies has always been to um, be called from afar for a great cultural purpose. And last month, I was called from the United States to Britain to um, cooperate with a British television producer who is turning my epigrams into a series of television programs, believe it or not. Uh, now, the programs are only 30 seconds long. Uh, so this is very unusual. But picture me sitting at the Windsor Horse Show next to a British television producer who is doing this, who is thinking of doing this. He's taking me there as his guest. Across the paddock from us is sitting the Queen of England. I kid you not, ladies and gentlemen. You may ask, what am I doing? I'm catching cold, that's what I'm doing. <laughs> catching one of the worst colds ever, and I'm having jet lag, that's what I'm doing. But I am really uh, uh, negotiating with this guy, and I do come back from England with a tape, which at least uh, one person in this room has seen, can vouch that it actually exists, of 10 of these 30-second proposed programs, which now have to be sold to a British television channel and then possibly all over the world. But I wanted to tell you about that, just because I have so few opportunities to share these things with anybody, and certainly with my fellow writers. Now comes the moment you've all been waiting for. You would like to hear me recite some pachas that you've never heard before to my own inimitable musical accompaniment. So here we go, ladies and gentlemen. These are all relatively new Feel free to react however you like. <laughs> the time for action is past. Now is the time for senseless bickering. <laughs> I try to take one day at a time, but sometimes several days attack me at once. <laughs> they laughed at Edison and Einstein, but somehow, I still feel uncomfortable when they laugh at me. Oh. All I want is a warm bed and a kind word and unlimited power. <laughs> Words are a wonderful form of communication, but they will never replace kisses and punches. Tomorrow is another day, but I hope it's not another day like this one. <laughs> My strange behavior as a child is easily explained. I was training to become a strange adult. <laughs> if you can't go over it, under it, or around it, you had better negotiate with it. If chocolate could teach, 
I would by now be very well educated. <laughs> the last time I felt good was at 10 a.m. about nine years ago. <laughs> Torture and slavery were outlawed long ago. But for some reason, marriage is still legal. Which is the non-smoking lifeboat? <laughs> I've lost faith in most things, but still believe in the importance of comfortable clothing. Every time I try to take on a new lease on life, the landlord raises the rent. Something about me must give lasting satisfaction, because I'm very rarely asked to come back. <laughs> Nothing is worse than the agony of indecision, except the grief of having decided wrongly. If it can't be done in bed, it's probably not worth doing. My life would not make a good drama. The characters are not sufficiently believable. <laughs> Sometimes, the attention I get is worth the pain I inflict on myself to get it. But if I yield to your reasonable demands, I'll never be safe from your reasonable demands again. I'd like to show you who's boss but I'm afraid it would only confirm that you are. <laughs> Instead of past, present, and future, I'd prefer chocolate, vanilla, and strawberry. <laughs> Somehow, I have to play my role in life as a gifted, beautiful, happy, well-adjusted person. Now, before I close, <clears throat> I am going to tell you my advice to writers. And this is very serious. Uh, so I will, without more ado, say it to you. And this is only from my, um, from my personal perspective, of course. And other people tell you completely different things. From my perspective, I say, and this is also from the idea if you want fame and fortune. Make it short. <laughs> Make it short. Copyright it. Oh, you wanted me to talk about copyright, didn't you? Oh, you know, copyright has been uh, so much a part of my whole business. You know, my sort of, my little epigrams are so easy to steal. People don't believe that anybody can own them. So I have had to learn a lot about copyright law, and I've had to get the very best copyright lawyers that I could. And I've had a constant stream of cases. Got one going on right now. Company called Kirsten Brothers. Kirsten Brothers. In, uh, in Arizona, Scottsdale, Arizona. They are putting out several products with the words, um, what is it, Dorothy? I'm just moving clouds today. Tomorrow I'll try mountains. That's my epigram. They've stolen it. But I've got my lawyer at them and they will lose because I have ironclad, I have uh, one judgment. I once won $18,000 in a case like this. They will have to stop. But it usually takes a little bit of time sometimes to convince these companies. 
Yes. Aha. That's why you need a good lawyer. <laughs> That's exactly why you need a good lawyer. Uh, another piece of advice. Whatever you write, however you publish it, make sure that your name and address, and if possible, even your telephone number, goes on it. You'll notice that all my little postcards all, all have on, not only that, they even ask people to send me money. But they have uh, my name and address and telephone number. Uh, if possible, or if necessary, or maybe even preferably, publish yourself. That's how I started. And I still do publish my own postcards. And there's no disgrace in it, and there's a lot to be said for it. And distribute yourself. I started by going around, um, Dorothy and I started by going around shops along Haight Street in San Francisco, putting my postcards in shops. And with your name and address on the back, if your stuff is any good, people will get in touch with you. <coughs> Illustrate yourself, if possible. Save a lot of money that way hiring illustrators. And illustrations add to the appeal of what you've got to sell in many cases. <clears throat> as soon as you possibly can, get a book out. Now, this is very serious, and you won't hear anybody else tell you this. It doesn't matter what's in it. <laughs> it doesn't. It could be practically blank. But your name, your name on the cover of a book will impress people. And you can use it in many ways to go further as a writer than you ever can before you have published a book. So if necessary, do it at your own expense. Get a book into existence with your name on it. I advise you this very seriously. If you want fame and fortune, whatever that means. Um, now, this should almost go without saying, but write down all your ideas. You'd be amazed how many writers don't even carry a, a pen with them. Um, I think they should be ruled out of the writer's fraternity. Wherever you get an idea, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, no matter how embarrassing or inconvenient it is, if you've got to stop your car or put down the baby, whatever, write it down right away. <clears throat> um, do market testing. Here's another thing that you may not hear a lot about. Go around and show anybody, uh, other people have said exactly the opposite. I know at this conference. But with our sort of thing, it's very easy to do because they're all short. But I say expose yourself to as many people as possible. Get as many reactions as you can. One advantage of this is that you will automatically find that some of your stuff is better than others, or at least is preferred to others. So you can immediately start a weeding process. And you can gradually find out at least, it may not be what's best, but you can find out what people prefer. And uh, this will help you tremendously. Some of you may have seen me wandering around the conference with these little books. These are uh, uh, new cards. I'm about to print a million more postcards. I know Frank Sinatra once said, there's nothing so scared as a million dollars. I disagree with him. There's nothing so scared as a million postcards when you have to print that many at a time to get them cheaply enough. So I have to be very careful to be sure that the ones I'm going to print are um, at least saleable. And there's only one way to find out. Ask people would they buy it. Use testimonials. Uh, don't fake them. But uh, when at all possible, get somebody to say something nice about you uh, and get their permission to, uh, to quote it. This will be invaluable to you in many circumstances. And use it shamelessly. Another piece of advice, this is so valuable, everything I'm telling you here. You're getting the accumulated wisdom <laughs> of 20 years of experience distilled today. Work with what's close at hand. Uh, use the resources in your own locality. 
don't think that you have to go across the country uh, or even to another town to find what you need. In most cases, even if it doesn't seem so good locally, there are so many advantages to working with people that are close at hand. Printers, publishers. I've been very, very lucky. My publisher happens to live in the same town and happens to be a wonderful person also. Howard Weeks, Woodbridge Press. I told you how that came about. <clears throat> uh, use mail order. When you have your name and address on, on the things you do, you might as well put a solicitation on as well. Invite people, say, if you like this, send me a dollar or five dollars or whatever, I'll send you another copy. Or send me uh, 50 cents and I'll send you a catalog of other things that I've done. Uh, it's just amazing how, if, if you stuff is any good, we have to assume that. If it's marketable, this is a wonderful way of uh, building up an income and establishing yourself. Avoid agents and other intermediaries wherever possible. All right, that's the end of my advice, and I'm going to close with a song. And this is a song written specially for this occasion, ladies and gentlemen. <coughs> this is a song for writers. Now, all this is being tape recorded, I think, I hope. Um, so this song is copyrighted along with everything else, but you are welcome to buy the tape and enjoy it. Yeah, I, this, I'll just have to have a drink before I go into this. This is going to take everything I've got <laughs> left. <clears throat> the tune is a <clears throat> tramp, 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 the boys are marching. The writer's song. With my paper here I sit, there is nothing upon it. Yes, the paper and my mind are just a blank. Fame and fortune are my goal. I'm prepared to bear my soul for a Nobel Prize and millions in the bank. Right, 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 you've got to do it. Get those words upon the page. Put it down somehow, some way, if you have to swear or pray. Stay and say it if a sentence takes a day. Do not worry if it's good. Do not wonder if you should. Do not fret that life is mean while passing by. For you know you have a word that the world has not yet heard. In your story there is glory if you try. Right, 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 we've all been through it. Words are all we have to sell. Just extract them from your brain. Never mind the sweat and pain. Then it's heaven, cause you've served your time in hell. In the word of my great predecessor, thanks. <laughs>